And we're going to dive right into our study. We have so much to mine the depths of this 20 verses, so I couldn't even squeeze it all into one message today. This is part one of Mark 5, verses 1 through 20, because as we start unpeeling all the layers, there's just a depth there. So we're going to get two weeks on this particular chunk of Scripture. Jesus demonstrates his authority, and he does so in some unmistakable ways that give us insight into God's character and his power. This story is filled to overflowing, so let's dive right in, and I'll just read right through verses 1 through 20, starting Mark chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has turned or how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell those in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Let's pray once more. Father, we need your Holy Spirit's insight into this particular passage of Scripture. It's a difficult passage, and yet it's just fraught with good things for us, and it gives us so much hope as we understand what your authority means in our lives. So I pray now you will illuminate the passage, and you, please, Holy Spirit, be our teacher today. I pray in Jesus' name.
we need to make some observations, and because this is part one, we're going to observe based on sort of uh, different kinds of uh, categories of observation rather than going verse by verse. And we're going to look prim primarily at the man and his possession today, and then next week, we're going to follow up on how the people in the area responded to this. So we're going to sort of leave that for next week. First of all, the region of the Gerizines. It said right away that they had come from the opposite side of the lake. They'd been on the western side, and Jesus had been teaching from the boat in that cove that we had talked about. And then they went almost straight across from just south of Capernaum all the way across to the eastern, northeastern edge of Galilee. It's not that far not quite even eight miles across. So they made it across to this place, and this is the only miracle that happened there on that side of the lake, unusually. Skeptics will say, Mark got it wrong because the city that's listed most often is about 30 miles southeast of where they say this thing took place. And so there are websites dedicated to debunking all this stuff, <laughs> and some of them will say that pigs had to fly. Because where Jesus went and cast out the demons and they went into the pigs, then the pigs flew 30 miles northwest all the way over to the edge of the Sea of Galilee so that they could run down that hill and be drowned. And I would say, no, I don't think so. And we're going to look at that. But I'm going to leave that thought with you and I'm going to pick it up and solve that problem for us toward the end of today's lesson. Because I think it's important for us to know that we can trust God's word. And I want you to be left with the notion that there are logical explanations for these things and they make absolute sense. And I don't want you to ever start doubting that this is mythology or made up or it's just man-made. This came from the mouth of God through his inspired writers. All right, possessed by what? Let's look at the possession here. We can see some references to these things that had possessed the man, these beings, in verses 2 and verses 8 through 13. Mark and other gospel writers use two words that are interchangeable. They use them almost interchangeably throughout the New Testament. That would be unclean spirits and demons. In fact, both are used in just this 20 verses. They are used interchangeably, but some people disagree about their meaning and the definition of what constitutes an unclean spirit or a demon. Now, I did a, a deeper dive into these words because I wanted to find out what does the evangelical commentator say about that. And the current thought from commentators is that the biblical representation of these things are that these are fallen angels. There is some strange extra-biblical material, some of which looks at later writings from rabbis that are not in the Bible, and they will try to connect this, strangely enough, to some of the Nephilim back in Genesis chapter 5. I didn't see any connection with that. I think it's a real reach. I think it's a stretch, and I think there's sort of a a leaning toward mysticism on the part of those commentators that try to connect this to the Nephilim. So I would say, I personally am quite comfortable with the vast majority of the commentators today who would say these were fallen angels. These were some of the angels back at the beginning that sided with Satan. Uh, there are a couple of verses that talk about that where Luke chapter 10, 18, Satan fell like lightning out of heaven as he was kicked out. And then Matthew 25, 41 mentions the devil and his angels that will one day be thrown, cast into hell. That's what I think these demons and unpure spirits are. Uh, the Bible gives us some indications that there may have been some that were worse than others, some that had some different roles, but by and large, these are people who are against what Jesus was trying to accomplish. How about the man's behavior? Verses 2 through 7. 
He lived among the tombs. Why in the world would anybody want to live among the tombs, which were in the hillsides and very often with some caves? Joy and I saw lots of caves in the hillsides as we were driving through um, Jerusalem and outside areas like that and down toward the Dead Sea. Why would he do that? Because he didn't fit in anywhere else. Based on the rest of this behavior, nobody would want him in their neighborhood. He would have the neighborhood watch people running him out on a rail. They would not want to be around this kind of guy. He was given to violent outbursts, just rage. He was scantily clad. That's a euphemism. Luke 8.27 actually adds this detail and says, basically, he didn't have any clothes on. And he was running around the tombs and the hillsides with no clothes on, screaming at the tops of his lungs and going into these violent rages. Doesn't sound like a normal kind of activity to me. Now, think about the contrast between this person who has been so dehumanized, because this sounds like something that's just not human, because it's not. The demons that inhabited this guy had so dehumanized him that he wasn't even acting human anymore. And yet, Mark says in 5.15 that he was seated after Jesus brought this man to wholeness, cast out the legion of demons. He was seated and clothed which even though he didn't say it earlier that he was without clothes, now it's implying that clearly if he's clothed now, that must have meant that he was not clothed earlier. So that matches what the other gospel writers say. And he was completely in his right mind. He was human again. Jesus restored this guy's humanity. Some of the things that we see that I think are disturbing, but also we're starting to see some of that happen even in our unusual culture, he was screaming and cutting himself with stones, gashing himself, hurting himself with stones. It's heartbreaking to think that people would want to harm themselves. And unfortunately, there's a psychological phenomenon happening, and I'm sure you're all aware of it, of people cutting themselves. And this happens thinking in a strange, twisted kind of way that they will actually feel better about themselves if they can harm themselves. Where does this come from? It doesn't come from God, that's for sure. Is this demon oppression? Perhaps. We're going to look at that. It can also be a psychological phenomenon. I'm going to look into that a little bit more deeply to see what is the difference between just a psychological phenomenon and demon oppression or possession. We'll hit that a little bit in just a few minutes. Uh, my wife was helping a person who was making a transition to her next life in heaven. She was dying in a hospital. And her family was very distraught. They were just a, a basket case emotionally, as you can imagine. And this is a person that we had ministered to. Uh, we'd poured a lot of time and energy in on this dear, sweet woman. But she was just distraught and was screaming in bed. And I know that she's a believer. She had a strong professed belief and lots of evidence to back that up. She used to play piano for us back at another church. And Joy went in, and the people were saying, can you do anything for this person? Her name was Corrine. And Joy walked over and just silently prayed. She, I don't think she even prayed out loud, but she took her hand and started patting her hand and rubbing her arm gently. And Corrine just absolutely relaxed, stopped screaming, was quiet, peaceful. It was like those waves that abated when Jesus said, peace, be still. Joy's healing touch and the quiet prayer was enough that it just absolutely calmed this person into total peace. And then when Joy started to leave, she started screaming again, and they said, you'll need to come back. <laughs> because every time she would walk away, Corrine would start to become distraught again. There's something about 
a healing touch of somebody that's indwelled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ that makes a difference and brings peace into calamity and to catastrophic situations. I can imagine that the people who wanted to steer clear from this guy had heard him in the distance and would tell their kids, don't go through that neighborhood on your way home from school. You need to avoid this tomb area at all costs because it was an awful, awful thing. Well, the Bible tells us that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and that's exactly what was happening. This guy was wrecking his own life because of his own behavior. And yet Jesus comes to give us life and a life more abundant, abundant and free. So clearly this is not coming from God, this behavior. Since Satan's purpose is to destroy people's lives, and since we're seeing so much blatant evidence in our society all around us of people who are just wrecking their lives by their choices that are so far outside what God says will bring us satisfaction and hope, we have to admit that there is some sort of demonic presence and force at work in our world today. It's hard to miss. Clearly, Satan is at work. And there's that spirit of the Antichrist. It's not the Antichrist himself, but the spirit of Antichrist that's mentioned in the Bible. And I think we can see evidence of that in our world today. I couldn't begin to understand this concept of wanting to hurt oneself, although I've been distraught enough at times that I know the temptation. But I can't say that I would understand the psychology behind that, and I don't know. I just don't know for sure if some of the things that we're seeing today are caused because of demonic oppression, or if it's a psychology, a psychology at work in the lives of young people who are mimicking what they see other people doing. I don't know that. What I do know is that we need to be praying for young people today, and we need to be pouring the love of Jesus Christ into their lives and to give them the kind of hope so that they'll have their identity firmly rooted in Him and what He thinks about them. Because He loves them, and He loves them so much that He would go to the cross on their behalf. We also read that nobody could subdue this guy. He was so strong. The description sounds like some cops that I've spoken with, and I've known several, including my brother-in-law, and we had uh, Pete Stipe come out here and give us some training with our safety team, and he was talking to me about some of the situations he found himself in at times. This sounds like somebody who's hopped up on PCP. I'm quoting cops. I don't know what that's like, but they do. It was somebody that could be so drugged up that there's an extra amount of adrenaline that just causes them to appear almost superhuman. And maybe there was supernatural strength involved in some of these things too because the description is he was literally breaking the chains apart and tearing apart the shackles. And these were strong shackles. And yet he would break free from them without fear of hurting himself like those parents that would lift a car off of a child because they've gotten an extra rush of adrenaline, they're doing something, and then they walk several feet and collapse because they realize they just expended so much energy. He didn't care if he hurt himself or not. He was just doing this stuff because he was completely possessed. It had to have been frightening. And sometimes I can imagine that people who had been possessed like that, I don't know if they have a knowledge at the time that they are behaving that way, and if so, that would bring even more Fear to them, thinking, I can't control this, and I don't know why I'm doing this, but it's scary to me too. But it was scary to everybody. Well, his case is extremely unique, especially in all of Scripture. This is why it's such an unusual situation here. We can see other accounts, quite a few other accounts of demon possession and Jesus doing exorcisms, casting out demons and other people, but usually it's one and done. Somebody would come up, the demon would announce Jesus' identity, and Jesus would say, don't tell anybody about that. 
I command you to come out, job done. That's it. Sometimes, like one time we saw a young lad who would be given some convulsions, he would be thrown into convulsions, but the thing that had a demonic edge to that was it wasn't just like epilepsy. In this case, every time he would go into a convulsion, it would put him in harm's way, and it would throw him either toward a fire or in some area where he would fall and hurt his head or do something like that. So there was clearly a demonic attack in that situation, but the vast majority of the demonic possessions we read about in Scripture Jesus just takes care of it like that. This is extreme. It goes way over the top. In this man's case, something on a much grander scale is happening. And this begs the question, why was the man's case so extreme? Well, verse 9 gives us the answer to that. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. That's the one that so many creepy movies misquote. They misquote a lot of scripture when they're looking for something scary. And they take it way out of context. But you'll see this in a lot of very scary, scary horror films. My name is Legion. They don't know what that means. They don't attach it to the redemption of Jesus Christ. But they use it because they know it's scary. And it is scary. But I'm going to help us nail down a fun fact, which is going to be really beneficial for you. And you're going to teach it to some of your friends. And they're going to love you for it. We're going to play higher and lower to arrive at this number. Don't look down at the footnotes if you have an NIV, okay? All right. A Roman legion would have contained how many soldiers? Throw out a number, and then we'll go higher and lower until we land on the number. 300? Higher. 500? Higher. 1,000? Higher. 2,000? Higher. 10,000? Lower. 5,000? Higher. Six? Did somebody say 6,000? 6,000. Yes! Matt got it right. You get 6,000 living water points for landing on the right number. Yeah. <laughs> Way to go, Matt, whose name is not Ben. All right, there's a personal thing about that. But anyway, 6,000 soldiers. So for the guy to say, my name is Legion, and because the Roman army was present in that part of the world back then, people would have known that, what that means. So was he lying to them? I mean, demons can lie. So maybe he's trying to make them think that there's more of him than there's there, but I don't think so. I think there were thousands of demons inhabiting this man. Here's some other fun facts to go along with that. There were 600 soldiers in a cohort. So how many cohorts, if there's 6,000 soldiers, 600 in a cohort? That would be 10 cohorts. You didn't need a calculator for that one. It's just one-tenth. Okay. And then 100 soldiers in a centuria, which would be commanded by a what? Centuria. You guys are so intelligent. It's amazing. Yes. So why is this word legion so important? Because this demon who possessed this guy was not just one demon. It was multiple demons and probably thousands of demons. This was an extreme case to the extreme case. Here's another detail that makes this man's case so unique, verses 11 through 13. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hills. The demons begged Jesus. They asked for it. Sometimes you get what you ask for, including demons. They ask for this. The demons beg Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them because they wanted to stay in the region, not understanding what was about to happen. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now, that doesn't match 6,000, but there's nothing in Scripture that says there have to be one demon per pig. <laughs> we should know that. 
And I think what we're really trying to grasp in this whole thing with lots of numbers is this was an enormous number of demons, and it was an extreme case. That I think we can all agree on. Why is a legion worse than one? Well, duh. If you're a good guy and you've got bad guys coming to fight you, it's like those ninja movies where you've got one guy that shows up and you think, oh, he can take him easy. Haw, whack it, whack it, whack, boom, he puts the guy down and you're thinking, yay, the good guy wins. And then five more bad guys show up out of nowhere, dropping out of the ceiling and stuff. And you're going, uh-oh, it's one against five. And then, and he takes care of the five and you're thinking, yay, he's on his way to victory. And then next shot, they pan way back, and there's like a hundred guys, bad guys coming at them like a swarm of bees. And you're going, oh, no. That's what this was like. Where do these people get good ideas for movies? They just have to go to Scripture. This thing was huge. To have thousands of demons inhabiting one man's person, this is incredible. And so, yes, it's going to be a whole lot worse, which is why his behavior was so off the charts. Matthew 12 gives us some insight, too. I'm going to cross-reference with that. Matthew 12 gives us insight about why it's more difficult for those who are possessed by multiple demons. Matthew 12, 30, uh, 43 through 45. And I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation because I like the way it's worded here. When an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert seeking rest but finding none. And then it says, ah, I will return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds its former home, speaking of the person, empty, important word there, swept and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they all enter the person and live there. And so that person is worse off than before. That will be the experience of this evil generation. Hmm. You know what I think a good application is, and it's fairly obvious here? A person can try to clean house, but it doesn't mean that they have trusted Christ. Somebody may go through a rehab program. They've gotten clean from something that they've been struggling with. Maybe they have been struggling with one specific particular kind of addiction, and they think, I've kicked it. I'm a strong person. I'm a better person than I was before. And they go on their merry way, but they act as though nothing has changed. you know why that is? Because nothing has changed. They haven't said, Lord, I understand that your grace and your mercy is involved in why I'm different now. I invite you to become the Lord of my life. I want to connect to you like the branch is connected to the vine. I need your sap, your spirit, your strength, your life-giving force flowing through me because you're the only one capable of subduing the stuff that I got rid of. And so the demons go around and they go, empty house. Hey, buds, let's move in. And they all come in and start having a party. It's scriptural. It's right there in Matthew. Matthew passage about the demons that grabbed their friends also helps us answer another big question that people have. Can a Christian be possessed by a demon? And I say, short answer, no. Because if the house has been swept clean, but that person has not trusted Christ, then it's empty. Christ is not indwelling in that person's psyche or mind or heart or all of the above. But if a person trusts Jesus Christ, who moves in instantly? The seal of our salvation, the Holy Spirit. He's indwelling in believers' hearts and minds. So if a demon comes along and sees that Christ is there, he's the strong man who cannot be bound, and so he's going to say, nope, can't move in there. 
So yes, there is oppression at times. I think demons are trying very hard to get Christians to trip up. But a Christian, in my mind, based on Scripture, cannot be possessed by a demon. Now, there's another big question that comes up when people start wrestling with these passages related to demons. Are all medical conditions considered demonic? Again, my short answer is no. Why do I say, say that? Because of some of the evidence that we see in Scripture that there are some things that are just simply medicinal. Uh, the lady who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and catches up with Jesus Christ, that's coming up in a little bit, a uh, couple of weeks, maybe three, because Mark's going to be taking my place while I go to do uh, a wedding for a nephew. But this woman interrupts Jesus, who's on his way, who's going to actually be raising a young lady from the dead, from Jairus, Jairus' daughter, and yet she interrupts him, and she's trying not to call attention to herself, so she only touches the hem of his garment, but he heals her. He doesn't say, the Bible doesn't say anything in that passage about an exorcism. Her hemorrhage was not caused by demon possession. It was simply a medical condition. So, no, not all medical conditions are caused by de demonic oppression. In a broad sense, going all the way back to Genesis, everything that we have to experience because of medicinal problems can be traced back to original sin, but that's not the same as de demonic possession. So, yes, our bodies are going to wear out because death came because of sin in the world, and none of us are going to escape that one day. But we can look forward to the hope of an eternal life, which we talked about just a little while ago in Growth Encounter, by the way. So the next related question is, is all mental illness related to demonic power or oppression? And I would say again, no. Not all mental illness is that. I've seen evidence, strong evidence of strong, firm believers who had a chemical imbalance for a short period of time, and it was righted by a different kind of chemical through medicines, and they were completely in their right mind. They served Christ. They were busy about exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. One woman that it was my first experience in a psych ward to go visit her, and it was a little unsettling because she actually thought that she was a president's wife and wanted to give us a tour of the White House. And to know that she absolutely believed that in that moment is kind of scary. And there were other people walking around the ward that I would think, these people are not quite in their right mind. And the person behind the desk says, well, this is a psych ward. So, yeah, they're not. They're not in their right mind. But the truth is, sometimes there are chemical imbalances. Sometimes there is demonic oppression. We need to be very discerning. And I think that we need to be very cautious about running to an extreme one way or the other. Because we can do more harm than good. For example, if somebody says, oh, no, no, everything is chemical. There's no such thing as demonic possession at all. Then we're going to be pumping chemicals into people, and there may be a spiritual problem there. There may be another extreme to that, and you can see the difficulty there, that if somebody is experiencing a temporary chemical imbalance, and they're already feeling bad about themselves, and then somebody suggests that their problem is created because of a demon, that could be a real problem. So we need to be very prayerful and very discerning and have nuanced, difficult, complex discussions with physicians and ministers as we tread softly on what we come to the conclusions about when it comes to mental illness. And we need to understand that God loves everybody and wants to heal everybody and bring them to wholeness. And sometimes he uses medicines to make that happen. Most of the really early scientists that started looking into medicinal practices were believers, and they were trying to help interrupt the curse of sin by doing good things to alleviate human suffering. We still see that today. 
So we're a melding of mind, body, and spirit, and I think a holistic approach is very applicable to Scripture rather than falling into one area or the other. So here's another big question that somebody might ask. Would modern medication have helped this demoniac, the guy that was so messed up? And here's my honest answer. Maybe. If it would have helped, I think it would have only subdued some of the symptoms but wouldn't have, would not have taken care of the root cause. Now, we treat symptoms all the time. You know, if we fall and scrape ourselves, and he was scraping himself on purpose with sharp rocks, but if we scrape ourselves, we can treat that. We can treat the symptom, but the body still has to heal. He still needed a healing which could only come from an exorcism, and Jesus took care of that. So maybe, maybe some of those things might have lessened the severity of some of his outbursts and some other things, but ultimately, he needed Jesus. <laughs> he needed what only Jesus could offer at that moment. Um, fortunately, the one person showed up, and I think it's good for us to know, and this is where it brings us a great deal of hope, Jesus had gone all the way across the lake for this one man. And he sought out the most wretched man of all in this region. That's who he went for. I think that's good for us to know. In one case, and this is something that I think is a cautionary tale for us to be very cautious about what we urge people to do or not do. One lady, and again, we knew her personally, she went off her meds one time because she had felt that God was speaking to her, telling her that she needed to trust him more and she needed to go off her meds. She desperately needed those meds. She went into a manic episode that was embarrassing and difficult, and the cops had to be called, and she wound up in the hospital for about a week until they could get her regulated again. And once they got the medications regulated with her blood levels, she was her right-minded self again, and she was perfect after that. So I saw that she was a believer, was not a demonic oppression in my opinion. I saw evidence of the fruit of the Spirit being poured out of her life, but when she went off her meds, things went wrong for her. We had to be careful of that. Another one, I've mentioned this before, we knew this person personally, had felt strongly by the group of people he was meeting with at the time, in my humble opinion, now this is just my opinion here, I think that group was really getting to, into some extra biblical and extreme charismatic behaviors that were not rooted in Scripture, and they were urging him to have enough faith to go off his insulin because he had had childhood diabetes. And he said, I'm going to draw a line in the sand, and I'm going to not step over that line and go back to unfaith because it's just disbelief for me not to believe that God can heal me. I've seen him do it to other people. I know he can do it in me. And he died. That's huge. And it shows me, folks, that I think that as we're living in this crazy post-curse environment where we do have medical issues, we need to be very cautious and very prayerful and not go to an extreme in one direction or the other. Yes, we prayed for him, and his wife prayed for him, had friends that showed up at the hospital and prayed for hours that he would come back to life. Didn't happen. It could have been avoided. He could have said, God blessed me with the knowledge that he's given physicians to regulate the insulin level in my body because of the curse of sin, and we're living in this world that sometimes we have to regulate other things in our bodies, and he would still be alive with us today and doing great work and great ministry. So I say that not to, not to cast dispersions on anybody. If there's a good side to that, and there is, he was a believer. So he's in heaven. Thank God for that. But I think of the tragedy of the lives that were negatively impacted after his death because of that experience. 
So yes, we need to trust some good, especially Christian doctors, well-meaning doctors, to give us good advice to help us do things that are going to keep us healthy so we can serve Christ in the years that he allows us on this earth. I remember chatting with a fellow, and I remember thinking how this guy needed hope because how does this man's experience give us hope? That's where I'm going as we get close to wrapping up here. Um, I knew the owner of a restaurant in Milan, and she said, do you have an hour that you could give to this young man who started working for me because he's really distraught, and he needs somebody to speak with, and I think you might be able to be a good listener for him. He's just really distraught. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to. So I met him. We went outside, sat behind the restaurant, and he poured his heart out. He said, I have done so many bad things. You can't believe the stuff that I've done. And he told me a couple of them. They were pretty bad. He said, I don't think God could ever forgive me. How can I possibly have a, a future because of these things that I've done? And I wish I'd had this story in my mind. I didn't at the time because if I did, if I'd been preaching recently and I had it clearly right at the frontal lobe, I would have said, well, are you living in the tombs? And are you cutting yourself with jagged rocks? And are you screaming at the tops of your lungs? And do you run around naked all the time? And if he would have said, well, no, I would have said, well, there was somebody worse off than you are. And Jesus completely brought that man to wholeness. That's how we get hope out of this man's situation. It's like all of us could say, yeah, I've never been this bad. I've had some days when I think this is my worst day on earth. This is terrible. But none of us have ever been where this man was. But if God can bring him to wholeness, Man, doesn't it bring us some hope to know that he can bring us to wholeness too, no matter what we may have done. Now, let me clear up what I said I would clear up toward the end about the alleged location discrepancy that the skeptics love to jump on and to say, ah, oh, it's not Gadara, that's 30 miles southeast of where this took place, and the Gerizines and all this kind of stuff. Let me give you a couple of uh, things that I think is Important for us to know because it's important for us to have the apologetics available to us so that as people start to push against what we know to be true, we have a ready answer. 1 Peter 3.15, have a ready answer for the hope we have in Christ and to do so with gentleness and respect. Garaza, Gadara, and Gergasa were three cities in the Decapolis. Decapolis. Deca means ten. It was the ten cities region east of Galilee. It's very possible that some of these guys that went from the western side over near Capernaum would not have dealt as much in that eastern side, near the Golan Heights is what we would consider it today. They wouldn't have known the area as well, but it was a region and it was inhabited by these ten major cities. Now at different times, these different cities would rise in prominence over another city. This city would be more prominent in this era for this few years, and then this city would be more prominent there. So normally, what they would say in every one of the places that I looked was it was the region of the Gerizines or the region of the Gadarenes or the region of this people or those people. Why would different manuscript copyists put a different word for a city in there? Well, let me give you a good example. When Joy and I were on sabbatical in Scotland, we'd bump into people and they'd say, where are you guys from? We would say, Michigan, USA. And they would say, oh, Michigan. Without fail, they always pronounce the CH hard CH. Oh, Michigan even though we just said it. But it was happened every time. And occasionally they would say, where in Michigan? Because they might actually know something about Michigan. Usually they didn't get that far. In some cases they would. And of course I would use the hand and I would say, this is Detroit over by the thumb knuckle and we are 30 miles west of the thumb knuckle. And they would go, oh, that's great. 
In one rare case, and this was very rare, we met a really nice man in Peebles down by the River Tweed. He was walking his pet dog, and he said, where are you from? And we said, Michigan. He goes, oh, Michigan. Where in Michigan? And we said, well, Ann Arbor. And he goes, oh, my daughter and her American husband live in Ann Arbor. What are the chances? That rarely happens. That wasn't happening a lot back when people were writing these manuscripts. So what would happen is they would do what we would normally do. They would put the nearest, most prominent city in that region and say it was in the region of and whatever era they were living in when they were copying it, they were trying to locate that map in somebody's mind to say it was the region of the Gadarenes or the region of the Gergesenes or the region of, the region of this people group. That's why it shows up differently. Now, if we could trace it all the way back to the beginning, I have a hunch that the original one, which was the Gerizines, Geraza, was the actual original place because the early church fathers quickly landed on that and said, oh, this is the traditional site because it's got the right topography. It's got the real steep hills. You could see where the pigs would be up in the uh, upper parts of the hills and they would run down so steeply and go off into to doing that. So I don't have any trouble at all with using the region because I know that it's 10 different cities there. They're just trying to locate it for us in our minds. And I think that that's completely inspired. And I think it's absolutely right. So which is it? Garaza, Garada, or Gergasa? Yes. All of the above. And why is that important? Because there is so much more pushback now than I've ever seen in my ministry. And we need to have a good ready answer. And we need to solidify our own faith and stand rock solid on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and to say we have no reason to doubt God's word. None. It is absolutely firm and it's set in stone and is unchangeable like Christ himself. It's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow because everything we need for salvation is found in God's word. I think that's worth camping out on for a while. So once again, we see both the power and the compassion melded into one person, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the same person about whom the disciples had asked, who is this man? He's God incarnate. That's who he is. He's the man that would go all the way across a lake to seek out the worst person there and bring him to wholeness. And he would seek you out and you and you and you and meet you at your point of felt need and bring you to wholeness as well. Let's pray. Father, you're so powerful, and your spirit still inhabits the hearts and minds of your believers, and we're grateful for that. And we're grateful to know that nothing could ever intervene. We cannot be de demonically possessed in any way because you're living inside us. And I pray that you would continue to strengthen our own faith as we look into your word, recognizing that we still serve you, this powerful, compassionate God, and that you're just as active and alive today as you were back when we saw these events unfolding, these true events in history. Continue to work mightily through us as we are being transformed daily and as we can become a transforming influence into the lives of those who see Christ in us. When they do that, I pray that we'll have a ready answer, that we'll continue to live our lives so that they'll be drawn to you because we want as many as possible to find the same faith that we enjoy so that they too can stand, stand firmly on the foundation of faith, and that is Jesus Christ, our chief cornerstone. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.